Good afternoon. In 2016, two artists installed an exhibit at the Guggenheim Museum, and they titled it, Can't Help Myself. The piece was a massive robot with this bucket on the front, and it had an arm that would extend out. And it was, in a, it was attached to the ground with the ability to go in 360. And then they would have this oil-like substance, red in color, spread out from the floor. And the object of the robot was to take that bucket and scrape the oil back in. But as they scraped the oil back in, it would just push it to the other side, at which point the sensor would notify that it needed to swing and it had to push it back in this way. It kept doing that for a number of years, mopping up the oil until three to four years in, sometime in 2019, it corroded with rust, quit, and the oil just went everywhere. The artist's intent, and they succeeded, I think, in what they intended to do, they wanted to make a political statement unintended but no less true was the point they made about the human condition there is a certain uncontrollability a certain futility in trying to stem the tide of corruption in our carnal nature Christ's words do ring true yet today in Mark 14 verse 7 when he told us that the poor we will have with us always Whenever we wish to do them good, there will still remain poor people in this world. We will come back to that truth later as we continue in our thoughts. But for now, I want us to see the impossibility of solving world poverty. It's never going to be solved. It won't happen. No matter how much money we give out, the poor will have with us always. There's a second critical truth to this found in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. Very little in life is under our control. We can choose to buy a new car, and then a number of other individuals in other cars control whether our car gets totaled. We open a restaurant, and two weeks later, a pandemic hits and shatters our budget and forces us to close before we get started. We don't control the day we're born. We don't necessarily control the day we die. From death or from birth to death, time and chance play a critical role in the physical outcomes of our lives. We have started with three paragraphs in my notes on futility and nihilism, and now that you're thoroughly depressed, let's go to Paul's answer. Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul explains that God purposed it this way so that we might hope 
This is verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There is something beyond the here and now, something beyond the carnal nature, something unseen, according to verse 24 in this same chapter, that brings all faithful servants of God into glorious revelation and reunion with Him, verses 18 and 19 of that same chapter. I'm prefacing my thoughts this afternoon in such a way because I want us to point to the purpose of our life here and the purpose of our life as a Christian body. This afternoon, we've been asked to talk about financial matters within the congregation. Ultimately, those matters ought to be addressed with hope in mind. We aren't here to solve the world's problems. We can't. Like the robot in Guggenheim, we will utterly fail if that is our aim. However, if we can use our gifts from God to help one another see that God always solves our problems, then we have used his blessings well. The congregation has asked me to address congregations providing financial assistance to members by answering the following questions. Number one. How far should the church as an organization go in assisting members either financially or in other ways? Number two, what would be the parameters applied for assistance? Number three, in what way could practical assistance be helpful and in other instances harmful? Number four, is money mismanagement a sin? Number five, if so, what would actually constitute mismanagement? And the way I want to approach this is to look at the last two questions first and then go back and talk about congregational assistance with that as our baseline. So we're going to look at money mismanagement and how that applies to us as individuals, and then we'll see how that impacts the congregations assisting others. So is money mismanagement a sin? In short, the answer is yes. Mismanaging our money can be sinful, and it can be that way in two very important applications. Proverbs 21, verse 20. There is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. It's somewhat incredible to read statistics regarding our nation's ability to squander resources. Just a couple of years ago, nearly half of the United States would not be able to cover an unexpected $500 expense. 28% of the United States does not have a single dollar in an emergency fund. Greater than 25% of U.S. adults ages 50 to 64 are not saving regularly for their retirement. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're all squandering our money, 
but it certainly doesn't appear that we have oil in our dwellings. Why might this be considered foolish behavior? Isn't it our money and we get to use it the way that we want to? Let's turn to Ephesians, or Ephesians Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 18 through 20. Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. What is wealth but an accumulation of the gifts of God? God gives it, we're told here. It is the gift of God. We don't earn it. It's his gift. And then he expects us to treat it like his gift. So how does God want us to use his gift? Do you suppose he's pleased when we squander it and waste it? Wasn't that the very sin mentioned in Luke chapter 15 in the parable of the lost son? He went out with his inheritance and he squandered it. Wasteful living. God expects us to use his gifts well. He expects us to bless others, to glorify him, and to appreciate his goodness through appropriate enjoyment. Notice here in Ecclesiastes 5 that he tells us it's good to eat and drink and enjoy the gifts of God. There's something appropriate about using his for our enjoyment as long as we recognize that that joy comes from God. But when we start to squander it and waste it, wasteful living, God is displeased and we've mismanaged our funds. We can also be miserly. And this is the other aspect of mismanagement. Proverbs chapter 11, start in verse 24. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. All too often we jump to as it he purposes in his heart, and we have a heart two sizes too small. We purpose little, and God is little pleased. The average Christian home, and I say Christian very loosely, but the average Christian home in America gives 2.5% of their annual income to charities of any sort. That is less, mind you, than what we were giving during the Great Depression, which was 3.3% of our annual income. In Matthew chapter 25, 14 through 30, in the parable of the talents, the man with one talent didn't use it. He kept it for himself. It was miserly about it. God expects us to use the blessings that he gives us. 
They aren't to be kept for self. They aren't to, let's go and build bigger barns and store our grain there. It's the man who never shares, who will never fully feel the joy God has in mind for him through the blessings of wealth. Paul remarks that this reciprocal joy and love is born out of a heart that's eager to share. And this is the indescribable gift of God. That's the way that Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. So let's not squander God's gift by wasting it on ourselves. He says, cast your bread on the water and you'll find it after many days. The one who brings it back to us will be God. The one thing that Paul agreed to do so eagerly in Galatians 2, verse 10 that he and the other apostles agreed it was right to give to the poor, to assist the poor. The virtuous widow or widow woman in Proverbs 31, she extends her hand to the needy, verse 20. Every time that we see God's gifts used properly, there is an element of giving and it's done generously. Now before we delve into the subject of financial assistance, I do want to cover the subject of poverty. The way the subject was approached in this lesson was very good. They distinguished poverty from money mismanagement, and that's appropriate. The poor have lived comfortably from generation to generation because they manage their money well. You can be poor and be content because you manage what you have well. To be poor does not mean you can't manage money well. It may well mean that you've just been given a small lot, one talent. We had a loan applicant the other day at the bank, and the couple combined had a salary of 140000 which if you're not familiar, that is a lot. But they couldn't qualify for a loan because of the amount of debt. Perhaps you, like me, have known happy souls who didn't have much more than two pennies to rub together. And then there's unhappy souls who seem like they've got an awful lot. When we work quietly with our hands and we serve God well, it doesn't matter how much we have. Are we managing what we've been given? Paul said, I learned to abound and I learned to suffer need. Neither state was of his own choosing. Poverty is part of the human condition. And we do well to see it as time and chance and just part of humanity. It's just part of where we're at rather than assume that mismanagement of resources brought them there. In fact, God says, seeing the poor with pity is lending to the Lord. Proverbs 19, verse 17. A trait for which God is well pleased. In John chapter 9, starting in verse 1, the apostles there want to figure out who sinned that this man has an illness. And Jesus reminds them that it's not always with someone's sin that brings on illness or any part of the human condition. But rather, in that instance, it was so that Jesus could glorify God. Do you suppose that the poor are in this world in time and chance so that those of us with something can use what we have to glorify God? 
If we can approach our fellow men with this same sense of empathy for humanity rather than a determination for who sinned, we'll be so much better off. So how far should a congregation go as an organization in assisting members either financially or in other ways? To my knowledge, God does not address this question specifically in Scripture. There are four areas in which a congregation is to focus their collective giving, and we want to look at those. Let's look at Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 15. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So here was a good fruit, and he addresses this with the congregation at Corinth and says it's his right to, as a laborer in the gospel, to be compensated for that work. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 10. It is right and appropriate and in good faith for a congregation to financially support laborers in the gospel. The fields are ready for harvest. The laborers few. Those who tread out the grain should be supported by the grain. I believe we establish a very general principle here in Philippians that's quite appropriate. If the congregation expenses money for the furtherance of the gospel, they've done a good work. Similarly, 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. Seems to indicate that it's appropriate to financially support elders. This didn't make as much sense to me until recently. Uh, we have one an elder that uh, is retired, and I've watched him over the last couple of years spend his hours during the day going around, checking on the health of all the members, seeing how he can pray with them, traveling to their homes. He has a sense for all of his flock, and he knows exactly what's going on. He's done a good work. He is very in tune with their needs, and he's made the brethren stronger because of the work that he is doing. Would it be appropriate from time to time to allow a man to do that on a full-time basis if the need was there absolutely it would be appropriate and we're given that latitude and the principle still remains financial support for gospel work is appropriate and acceptable to God let's go to Acts chapter 6 1 and 2 Now in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. 
The same thing, same issue is dealt with in 1 Timothy 5, where we were before, in verses 3 through 6. And it deals in a situation in which widows received support from the congregation on a regular basis, on a continual and regular basis. Paul's words in 1 Timothy are very restricting as to who would be eligible and when they would be eligible. A godly widow over the age of 60 without family to assist. I remember being in a Bible study on 1 Timothy 5 and we were going into the minutia of what does it mean for this widow and and who qualifies. And, And an elderly woman piped up in the middle of the study and said, that poor woman is going to starve before we figure out whether we can help her. And the point is well taken. God had in mind here a situation in which a congregation is supporting the widow on a regular basis. If a woman is in need and the congregation learns of this need, find a way to help her. It may mean contacting her family. It may mean having a financially savvy member of the congregation help her budget. It may mean helping them with government assistance paperwork. It may mean helping for a month or two while everything gets straightened out. It is pure and undefiled before God to visit the fatherless or the widows in their affliction. The fourth area that we see, and we want to go to 1 Corinthians 16, the first three verses here. This is also dealt with in 2 Corinthians, the 8th and 9th chapter. But let's look at 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. The Lord provides ample evidence that we should abound in our giving to needy brethren. He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. 2 Corinthians 8.2 Abounded in the riches of their liberality. Chapter 9, verse 11, liberality. Chapter 9, verse 13, liberal sharing. There is this example at Macedonia that Paul speaks about. And here is a group willing to go beyond their means to assist their brethren because of their love for God. If God's people were struggling in Jerusalem, they wanted to make sure that they had everything they needed. We see a similar example with similar generosity in Acts chapter 11. The brethren at Antioch give money to the brethren at Jerusalem. Prophets came up to Antioch from Jerusalem and shared with them the dire situation happening there in Jerusalem. And then the brethren at Antioch sent the money back to Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas. That part of it is interesting to me. Why didn't they send it with the brethren, the prophets who came back who were walking, I assume, back from Antioch to Jerusalem and were going to be staying there. Why send Paul and Barnabas and make them go on an extra trip? It seems to me that the brethren 
wanted to have confidence. It wasn't so much a mistrust of the brethren from Jerusalem, but there was this confidence that they had that if it's with Paul and Barnabas, it'll get to the right place. If we hear of a brother who needs funds for a vehicle repair, it's perfectly acceptable for the congregation to send a, a deacon along to pay the mechanic. Perfectly acceptable. Not that we don't trust, but if we send those funds with the deacon, we've got confidence. When we consider assisting members of the congregation financially, we're considering a work that I think is along the same lines of Macedonia, Corinth, and Antioch. And the answer with them was liberally. And I'd encourage us to err on the side of mercy and liberality in our approach to one another. Mercy triumphs over judgment, James says, just before he addresses the subject of giving. And the Proverbs tell us that we honor God when we have mercy on the poor, Proverbs 14.31. There are some general principles that ought to, to lead us to that conclusion. John chapter 13, 34 and 35, Jesus gives us a general principle. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this you all, this all will know that you are my disciples. Jesus showed us an example when he washed his disciples' feet and then he shares with them this principle. Love one another. <clears throat> service beyond what is expected. Love one another. Here he's speaking about the individual and his responsibility, but the principle of loving becomes foundation for brethren interacting <coughs> in unity with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Hebrews 4, 2, and 3. There's a certain collective love that needs to be shown. And we see in this example uh, a one who loved his brethren to the point of washing their dirty feet. We see examples at Macedonia and Antioch of brethren who loved one another to the point of going beyond their means to share with their brethren at Jerusalem. We'll get to a point in a moment when support may not be the right mission of the congregation. But even in those instances, love for one another ought to cause us to make sure that any need is covered. It may mean a brother reaching into his own back pocket and giving a a cash-filled handshake. It may mean a family reaching out to another family and saying, hey, I'll watch your kids no charge so that you both can get back to work and get back to financial stability. Whatever it looks like, we're charged to love one another. Philippians chapter 2, 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. He goes on in verse 5 to explain that this esteeming and looking after one another is the same mindset as that of Christ. Be like Christ toward one another. 
Paul encourages us to consider ways that our body, just like our body would take care of itself and rest if we got ill or we had pain, we would take care of that pain. He says, think of it in that same way when you're together. Deal with the issues and make sure you're paying attention to those. Figure out what are the pains, what issues exist in the body, who needs help. And be in tune with one another to the point where those needs are known and met. Esteem one another better than ourselves. Thirdly, Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Individually, we have an obligation to present our bodies sacrificially before God by providing for the needs of the saints. Note the pattern that was established in Acts chapter 4, 34 and 35, where all the brethren there took what they had in excess and laid it at the apostles' feet so that then the apostles could distribute it as there was need, so that no one in the congregation lacked. Everyone's needs were met. The brethren used the congregation as a vehicle then for identifying and addressing needs. It's perfectly right and acceptable to share our bounty with the brethren and the congregation's leadership use our funds collectively to address needs that saints may have. No one in Jerusalem lacked because leaders at the congregation wisely distributed to those who had need. These examples at Macedonia, at Corinth, at Antioch, and the principles of love, esteem, and distribution all point to a congregation giving generously when a need arises. What would be the parameters that we need to apply to this assistance? There are very few parameters governing giving within the Scripture. If anything, the Lord would encourage us to do more than we currently do. That said, there are two parameters established in Scripture which should govern the collective purse of the congregation. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 3-16. We touched on this briefly earlier, but Paul establishes parameters governing frequent ongoing monetary distributions. These ongoing gifts are first and foremost governed by the demographic. It's only for widows and those over the age of 60. The only example we see in Scripture of ongoing distributions is to these widows. Other than that, I don't know of a single instance where someone who wasn't laboring in the gospel received ongoing distributions from the congregation. God did not design the congregation as a charitable organization designed to meet one's continual income needs. The congregation ought to be there when one of its own has a need. They should be there and they should give generously. However, they do not have the same obligation to continue that support indefinitely unless the recipient meets the criteria here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Acts chapter 4, we mentioned this earlier. This is the second parameter given. Luke makes the point clear that distribution here occurred when there was a need. No one lacked, but the focus was on needs. 
We can imagine various scenarios of need. There's a house fire. The income-producing spouse passes away. Chronic illness results in lost job. All of these would be needs that a congregation could meet. And as we have ability, we ought to do so generously. And, and be, I've seen this done uh, creatively throughout congregations. I know of a sister who was given yarn by her br- brethren. She was really good at making blankets with yarn. And, and so to help her financially, they gave her this yarn. She made enough to make her needs met, and then whatever was left over, she would give back and give away. And so brethren were given blankets from the yarn that they gave to her. What a beautiful scene that is of love. We had a a sister ask for assistance on multiple occasions. The deacons invited her to meet with them and discuss her budget. They helped her better understand her financial situation and prepared her for the solvent situation that she finds herself in today. I share this because it's not always money that's the right response. In fact, helping monetarily isn't always helpful. Which leads us to the the last question that was asked of us, in what way could practical assistance be helpful and in other instances, harmful. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 10-15, that assistance should produce thanksgiving to God. So if God is glorified by both the giver and the recipient, then good has been accomplished and the assistance was helpful. But let's notice 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 where we find an instance where this wouldn't be the case. Start in verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor do we eat anyone in eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with, with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. It would be perfectly acceptable for the congregation to have a conversation with the requesting individual. Why are we in this situation? Why do you find yourself here? Is it because you were unjustly let go of a job? Was there some time and chance that has left you in this sad state of affairs? Or is it due to a bad spiritual heart? And we've got something different to fix there. Paul's comments to the brethren at Thessalonica point to an issue which might arise. Brethren could see this common purse as an opportunity, and so I don't have to work. We'll depend on the love of the brethren to see me through. And Paul makes it clear, if you're not going to work, neither should you eat. There could arise situations where our assisting someone would make the circumstances worse and encourage them to go further down this path of sin. Here the brethren went from laziness to gossip. 
and busybodies? The answer in verse 15, yet do not count them as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother. They are your brother, and you are to love them. Love them enough to want them to see them walking worthy of God's calling. If that means letting them hit rock bottom so they can be humiliated and get back up in the right way, then that's what we need to do. The greater principle here is to use discernment. Love is not blind. Love rejoices in the truth. Helping and loving our brethren ought not to look blind either. Let's be generous, absolutely, but to their betterment and not their detriment. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, He is dispersed abroad. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. We began this afternoon by talking about a piece of artwork that corroded over time after it failed miserably to take care of the task it was called to do. That is the natural life. This world tries to serve humanity. It tries to unite as a human people. It tries to show compassion to the poor and the needy. Ultimately, the poor remain. The world remains disjointed. And life continues in a sad state of affairs. God reminds us through Paul that with him, with God, we have an abundance. The abundance we have is not of ourselves. And it shouldn't be kept for ourselves. He is given to the poor. He's dispersed abroad. What have we done? He supplied us with all we need and more. So as we have ability, let's serve one another in love. Let's err on the side of compassion, always seeking that which brings glory and thanksgiving to God. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift.